0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. My name is Gareth um, and I am one of the elder candidates here at North Lakes. And it is my privilege today to bring uh, this series, Fearless, to a close. It has been a time of contemplation on the reality of the spiritual. And for those of you who may be like myself, um, who are inclined towards being sub-spiritual rather than super-spiritual, rather than perhaps being too hyper-acutely aware of the spiritual, kind of having a fixation on the temporal rather than the eternal, being purely here and now rather than being aware of the supernatural reality of the world in which we live, this has been an excellent reminder. In, this, in light of this supernatural reality and Paul's very clear instruction for us to engage in spiritual warfare, to put on the armour of God, to wrestle against things which we so often forget are there, it's been a great time in our life group as we've been gathering together every week. And I'd like to just take a small time to reflect upon a few of the pearls that really stood out to us over these last few weeks from both Jimmy and Kyle's sermons. In our life group, great discussions have been had about how to distinguish between the voice of the accuser, you know, that voice in the head versus like our own voice, our own insecurities versus the voice of the enemy. Sometimes Kylan would say that that might perhaps sound differently, whether it's like you are a loser versus I am a loser, that I am might be our own internal voice, the you might might be this third person speaking into our lives. Jimmy last week reminded us that the one offensive weapon that we have is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and because it's our one weapon, we must be familiar with it. We must study it, memorize it, so that we can bring it to bear when we need it, like Jesus brought the words of Deuteronomy to bear when he was contending with the devil in the wilderness. Kylam spoke of the helmet of salvation reminded us that we must protect our minds with the truth so that we can dispute the lies of the enemy and know, one, that God is for us, that he desires our good, that God is with us, that God walks with us this path of joy and suffering that is our lives and that God is in us, that God is present, empowering our lives and our work, giving us strength to not only carry on but be victorious. This stuff can seem so unimportant, particularly to somebody like myself. That's sub-spiritual. But another thing that our life group reflected on was the Lord's Prayer. Many of us know the words but breeze over its implications. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I can only re- re- like repeat it in the King James English. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread emphasizing that this is a daily prayer, a daily need for God's providence. Forgive us our sins, emphasizing that we also need this forgiveness daily, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This daily prayer mentions spiritual warfare, and I believe that that means that there is a sense in which this should be on the forefront of our minds as Christians, an awareness that we need God's grace to fight this war. And I think that that is as good a place as any to pause for a moment, to bow our heads, to pray and hope that the Spirit of God will speak to us through his words. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity of contemplation, of quiet, of meditation and learning about this world in which we live. It is a good reminder to know about the reality that we do face an adversary who longs for our death, who longs for our destruction. But may may we be encouraged, knowing that we have a far greater ally than we have an adversary. God, through all of this time, may we not be uh, overwhelmed with the fact that we have a world in which we will be coming up against strifes. May we be encouraged to lift our eyes to the horizon, looking forward to the day of promised redemption in which you will make all things new. As we hear the words of the Bible, may there be more of you and less of me. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I would encourage you guys to be cracking open your Bibles again to Ephesians 6. Let's read that passage one more time. We're going to be reading again from verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We are finishing this series today totally out of order, which I have been informed is a source of frustration for the persickety, ordinal and particularly organized among you. I'm terribly sorry, but we are going back to that verse 15 where we're going to be camping out today and finishing with the middle bit, the shoes of peace. And as for shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, our time together would very sensibly start with a focus on these shoes. Not normally something that would be the topic of conversation where someone was admiring a suit of armour. However, not only now, but since the time of Alexander the Great, shoes have been a vital part of a soldier's equipment. These shoes would need to have three essential qualities which Tim Keller so beautifully brings to light. Firstly, they need to be grippy. They give the wearer clarity of footing. When a soldier was fighting, they needed not to slip. They needed to stand so that they could withstand. It was essential that they could keep their footing. If they lost their footing, if they would slip, if they didn't have grip, they would die. The soldier's shoes at this time had little cleats or spikes on them so that they would stick in the ground and hold. Secondly, they needed to be tough, they needed to help the soldier endure. Apparently, in this time when armies were defending their turf, they would put wooden or metal spikes in the ground, small enough that a soldier could accidentally step on them and then be immobilized. The leather of the shoes needed to be tough so that the soldiers could not only endure the hard road of getting to the battle, but also the snares of their enemies. And finally, they needed to be mobile, they needed to help them move forward. So many commentators make this particular point that Alexander the Great conquered the world with a pair of shoes. Not just one, like loads of pairs of shoes worn by his soldiers, but like the inability to manoeuvre an army would render it helpless against a more mobile foe. And it was the mobility of Alexander the Great's armies that made them so effective. Those shoes would need to be light. They would need to be comfortable. So these shoes, which the readers in this day would have been familiar with, they would have known that they were grippy, that they were tough, and that they were mobile, they were light. They would; These would have evoked thoughts of clarity and certainty of footing, of toughness and durability, as well as this light-footedness. In the same manner that the breastplate... Breastplate represents righteousness. The belt represents truth. The helmet represents salvation. What do these shoes represent? What are they meant to embody? What are they meant to give us an insight into? The mistake that I immediately made when I read the passage was that I fixated upon the gospel of peace. We're a gospel-centered church. We're a gospel-loving people. But as has been pointed out to me by commentators and preachers, the gospel of peace is actually downstream from the object or the subject of this sentence, which is readiness. The readiness comes from and is grounded in the gospel of peace, which we will get to in a moment. This readiness is what Paul is trying to encourage the listeners towards. Commentators are a little split as to exactly what this means, particularly some of the older ones who tend to focus on this firmness a staunchness and immovability, which I'm not entirely sure is a word. But like, I think that the durability of the armour is already well established in the breastplate and the helmet, in the shield. The thing I think that this item perhaps uniquely brings to the party is that nimbleness, a light-footedness, a poise, and a dignity. And regardless of how you read this word in particular, we'll burrow into the word with a little more focus later on. But there, with all of these pieces of the armour, there's this expectation of activity. There's this expectation that a Christian is a doer, someone who acts and is able and ready to act. Even in the broader context of the passage and the nature of spiritual warfare, Christians are expected to take the gates of hell. Matthew 16, 18, which we have referred to several times in this series, has Jesus telling his disciples, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not weapons. Gates don't march forwards. Gates don't gates that don't prevail fall. They are overcome by an opposing force. We, the church with God, are the opposing force, and it is on these shoes that we will arrive at the moment of conflict. Both the armor. In Paul's instruction that we put it on, and more specifically in the shoe's implication that we are to be ready, there is an imperative of action. But this readiness, this preparation, is not of our own making. It is grounded in and finds its source from somewhere much more profound. The gospel of peace. Our ability to make war is found in a peace. And that's a curious place to find our foundations. We desperately desire peace. We live in a culture which is particularly now saturated with a desire for it. I don't know how many of you have experienced the same thing, but I'm constantly being peppered with promises for peace, whether it be a new mindfulness app, a book which promises to give me the five-step method for dealing with my stress, a holiday which will remove me from the nine-to-five grind, an item which will stop my newborn crying, a TV or a book or a game which allures with the promise of amusement, of distraction, even the phone in our pockets. How often when we feel uncomfortable standing in a queue, stressed out, unable to sleep at preparing a sermon, do we tap and then scroll upon that glowing rectangle. We desire peace, but I know so few people who really have it. And these solutions offered by the world are so superficial. They are so quick and they're so easy. They're focused on behaviors and on brief reprieves. If you are here today to find peace, I understand. We need it. We often feel grated by this world like joints that have been worn down to bone on bone where every step can feel more tiring, arthritic and dissatisfying than the last. But I bet that when you're talking about this peace, you're normally saying, I'm struggling mentally. I've got too much stress and I'm anxious. Or I'm struggling economically with either too much or too little work. Or I'm struggling relationally. I'm lonely or I feel oppressed. What we are looking for solutions in is the fruit of a tree whose roots we are often uninterested in understanding. The question of this today's passage is what is the root of this peace? And the Bible is really clear that peace from God requires peace with God. Our subjective sense of peace, of quiet, of satisfaction relies upon an objective peace, a ceasefire, and a reconciliation with our Creator. These issues are not small, but this desired peace from God is superficial compared to the depth of our need for peace with God. We have no hope of lasting significant horizontal peace while we have vertical conflict with our Maker. And friends, sometimes something that we forget is that our natural state is one of conflict with our God. And the Bible is really clear on this point, particularly in verses like Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by him. Those who haven't been reconciled are God's enemies. They're at enmity with him. They're in conflict with him. And for most of us, that's a strange thought. Even those of you who might not be Christians today might say, I'm not at war with God. I'm not his enemy. I don't feel much about him at all. I don't think much about him. I don't really care. But I'm not always sure that that's true. Because how do we tend to show this? I couldn't believe in a God who let my loved one die. I couldn't believe in a God who's let there be so much suffering in the world. I couldn't believe in a God who doesn't make his presence known in a more obvious way. I couldn't believe in a God who wants to limit my freedom. For myself and Haley. more recently, why was it that a good God would let us miscarry, struggle with infertility, feel alone and dejected, caught in a years-long cycle of hope and grief? In these moments, it's not that we don't believe in God, it's that we hate him. And it's in our hatred that we push him away. Leave his presence, knowingly or not, and go our own way. And I'm not even going to try to address most of those particular objections today. I'll just leave that mess on the floor for Carlin to clean up. But I want you to leave that with an illustration that there is perhaps this initial enmity between God and man, that it doesn't always feel settled, our relationship between us and him. And the first question that you need to ask before you can find a deep inner peace from a Christian perspective is Do I truly love the God of the Bible? Have I admitted my rebellion? Have I admitted that I am not God? Have I admitted my need for Him? Do I love the God of the Bible, even when I sometimes don't know how He could be good? Is God good? For those of you who have spent any time at all in church, I hope that you know that this is where the sermon pivots to for a moment, that the peace has been won, his goodness proven. This peace has been bought. Jesus entered creation as a man, the God man. As C.S. Lewis says, Jesus became the son of man in order that we may become sons of God. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, and rose again. And if you want this peace with God, this is the way. This is the only way. And Jesus is the embodiment of the character of God, his love and his goodness. Thomas Brooks, the 18th century pastor and theologian, wrote, Our sins are debts that none can pay but Christ. It is not our tears but his blood. It is not our sighs but his suffering that can testify for our sins. Christ must pay all or we are prisoners forever. This peace with God is a product of our acknowledged war with him, our admission that we cannot bridge this gap with our tears, our sighs, or our efforts, that we have to get off the throne of our lives and sink into his outstretched arms of grace. This offered objective peace is the thing that grounds our subjective horizontal peace. But what does that peace from God end up looking like? In this text, we can't go past readiness. Or in the Greek, it is the word hedamosia, apparently. I just asked Kylan before and he wasn't sure. But, you know, if I say it fast and I say it confident, hedamosia. As mentioned before, it means this light-footedness or this sluggishness and athleticism. Paul is using a physical and military metaphor to speak to what character we need to cultivate. And it's probably one best marked by a kind of joy. Not a superficial jubilance, but this profound sense of liberation, of freedom. And there are three things that really stand out to me as to why this peace with God should lead to a peace from God. First is a knowledge of our imputed Righteousness. This was the subject of Kylam's first sermon in many ways, that we are a freed people, a people who have been imbued with a righteousness that is not our own. There is this knowledge that comes from this deserved condemnation. And when we know that, the pretense of perfection falls away. There should no longer be an expectation of insincere moralism or this white-knuckled righteousness. I can tell you here that I am a sinner. I have been redeemed in a manner that I could have never imagined. I was lost and I am now found. There's this freedom of knowing that I don't have to be God and that I could never be perfect. The next thing is that we get new desires, that we forget ourselves in a superficial way and remember ourselves in a much more significant one. I was reflecting on why I have felt a lack of peace or a lack of satisfaction over the last little while. For me, the dissatisfactions that I have felt generally flowed from needs not being met or expectations not being met, but they were not good ones. I, it's pretty much always when I've kind of desired metaphysical junk food, when it was my lack of needs being met, that, it wasn't my lack of needs being met that was the problem. But it's just that my needs kind of sucked. They were generally born from ungodly desires for ego, acclaim, self-satisfaction, or comfort. John Piper has this great line, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. This peace with God offers us a satisfaction, an intimacy, a love and a glory that was not available before. We get new desires. We forget ourselves in a superficial way and remember what we really want in a much more meaningful one. And finally, we get an eternal perspective. Our gaze has been lifted up from the ground to the horizon where we are waiting with bated breath for a new promised dawn. There are accounts from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus and Christian writer Tertullian of Roman generals when they returned in glory after a military victory that they would have a slave whisper in their ear, memento mori, remember that you are mortal remember that one day you will die. These ideas are memorialised in the philosophy of Stoicism, an understanding of our lack of significance, the fact that we are liberated from any pretense of importance by the fact that our lives are dust. And there is wisdom there. The general is being told that their lives were comparatively insignificant compared to the greatness of the empire of Rome. We, however, are serving a much greater aim. The Roman Empire is long gone. The glories of Rome are either laid to waste or preserved of relics of an ancient time. The kingdom of God, however, will stand forever. Kevin Van Hooser, in his book, The Drama of God, makes it clear that there is this great play being performed on the stage of eternity. But we're not the main character. We are merely extras who take to the stage just for a moment, play our part, augment the story of the lead, before leaving, having been rich for the moment that we shared the spotlight with God. The lead is God, and the drama is that of redemption. When we realize these three things to be true, one, that our righteousness is not our own, that two, we have new and better things to pursue, and that three, our lives are just a small part in an eternal drama. We cease to be buffeted by trials. These light and momentary afflictions are eclipsed by the glory that is to come. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot yet mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The peace that we have from God, which we draw draw from our peace with God, from our reconciliation with our King and Creator, we then become ambassadors and instruments of his peace and grace in the world. It is then that we can consider how we can become instruments of peace for God. To say it in another way, to what end have we been redeemed? His glory and the good of the world. We are a people who have been redeemed by the source of redemption to bring this redemption to a world that needs to be redeemed. And that's only found through the gospel of peace. As an ambassador of this redeemer, we make incarnate, incarnate in flesh, in meat. We make physical the joy, the readiness and the beauty of the gospel, although imperfectly. We are called to don these articles of war, the breastplate, the helmet, shield, sword, belt and shoes, and herald the returning king. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though he were making his appeal through us. And this theme of being an ambassador, of being a peacemaker, persists throughout the New Testament. The blessed are the peacemakers and all that. But I'd like to draw a quick distinction between like a superficial peacekeeping and a much more substantial, meaningful peacemaking. And also make it clear what peacemaking is not. One, peacemaking is not a personality type. Some people may be more gifted or inclined, but it is expected of all. Being inclined towards quarrel is something we should repent of. Number two, peacemaking is not compromising the truth. It doesn't change with the wind or with pressure. Number three, peacemaking is not being a pushover. And that happens when we falsely equivocate peace with silence or a thin veneer of politeness in language and posture. We can sacrifice a true peace that comes from truth and reconciliation for a peace that comes with so many conditions upon politeness and behavior. And I'm sure that we have all experienced this at some point around a family dinner table. Yeah? And number four, peacemaking is not being a pacifist. By the way, that wasn't like an excuse to like start like starting fights at a dinner table. Um, that's just, yeah, it's just, my, it's just my analogy. It's, it's, not, it's not perfect. That's fine. And number four, peacemaking is not being a pacifist. It doesn't shy away from conflict with evil. The best example that I can give of peacemaking in a meaningful, tangible way um, is one that I'm ex- privileged to experience often. Um, Outside from being a very middling preacher, I work as a paramedic. And often I step into moments which are filled with fear and urgency. When you step into a scene, people look to you, your demeanor, your tone of voice, your stance, your speed, to tell them how to feel about the situation that they are in. Your job is not to keep whatever peace is there, but instead to make peace where there was none and i take genuine pleasure in lowering the emotional temperature of a scene slowing people down calming them down and helping them respond as well as possible to a situation that may be the worst day of their lives i would be totally be i would be totally unable to do that if i myself were in a panic honestly sometimes i'm pretty stressed, but I need to be constantly reminding myself of a few things to keep my composure, to keep my peace, so that I can be an ambassador of that peace. And they all come down to keeping myself slow and intentional. I never run. Never. Like, no matter what is happening, nothing, at least in my context, is worth running to, for a few reasons. One is safety. If you're running, you don't know where you're putting your feet. No matter how grippy your shoes, you can end up losing your footing. If you're running, your heart rate goes up. Your body is getting all the signals that this is a stressful event and you can't think or act clearly. If you're running, you're rushing. And you give signals to everyone around you that this is something to panic about. Everyone is gives off this unfathomable about unfathomable amount of information to their observers constantly. And what this piece should be trying to communicate is this intentional slowness, a clarity of direction, an understanding of what is meaningful. It is the overarching point of this verse that a Christian's life is to be marked by hetmosia, by readiness, by a lightness, a nimbleness, and ultimately a joy a clarity of where we are going. So we in the pews must ask ourselves, what are we communicating to the world in which we are walking? Are we demonstrating this peace? This peace which should bring Christian brothers and sisters together as we see that our family union is not for our purposes but for God's. This peace which should bring us closer to our neighbours as we see that our homes, our time, our resources are gifts, which we can enjoy because of what God has done and are most perfectly fulfilled in their purpose when they are bringing people closer to Jesus. And then when trials of life may come, may these shoes of peace help us be prepared, athletic, nimble and light, and not to be overwhelmed. And as the band comes up, may these shoes help us grip with clarity to the truth. May they help us be tough and durable. May they help us to be mobile, willing to move and willing to yield to the will of God and to move forward towards his glory and our good. This series, as it draws to its close, has been a wonderful reminder of God's provision. He has provided for us This starting kit, this breastplate, a helmet, a shield, a sword, a belt, and some shoes. But we must be intentional. We must put it on. The gates of hell will not prevail against the onward march of the church. We must be aware of its reality and move forward into the fray. I'd encourage you, remember the Lord's Prayer. Be dependent on God's daily grace for the fight as we should be for our food, as we should be for our forgiveness, as we should be to forgive others. And friends, we can be fearless in our fight against the darkness. We have a God who has already won, who in the end will trample death underfoot And when we have peace with God, he will grant us peace from God so that we can step in courage to spread the peace for God. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.